Welcome to the SCRA CEO Podcast, where we hear from CEOs on their entrepreneurial experience. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the SCRA CEO Podcast, where we talk with local CEOs within the South Carolina region about what they're doing in the space. Um, my name is Kathy Serafin, my co Hi, I'm Matt Bell. I'm the director of the SC Launch Program here at SCRA, and we are excited to have uh, Martin White here with Ruffian Software, um, one of our SC Launch portfolio companies. We thought we'd spend a little time with him just kind of going through uh, the background of the company, his experiences, and just learning a little bit more as to what it's like to be an early stage founder. So um, Martin, why don't you kick us off and just go into a little bit about the company and about yourself, if that's okay. All right. I'm, uh, I'm Martin White. I graduated from Clemson University many moons ago. I worked in industrial automation, business software. Um, I wrote artificial intelligence and genetic genetic algorithm stuff for a while. I worked in software literally all over the world. I went to Switzerland, Germany, Michigan, all over. And for 12 years, I worked at an upstate MSP or a managed service provider, an outside IT company. In the 12 years that I worked there, I saw security go from something nobody cared about to something everybody was hyper-focused on. In that security journey, malware became an issue. Software came out to help address that. The need for backups became an issue. Software came out to help address that. But in that security transition, privileged account management was completely missed, in my opinion. The MSP that I worked with had 25 technicians, serviced over 400 different businesses in the upstate South Carolina. And they used, when the technicians accessed those client networks, they used one administrator account shared between all the technicians. This is a very niche problem, very secure, very cybersecurity specific problem to outside IT companies. So in 2017, 2018, I decided, well, this MSP needs to fix that. I looked out in the market to try and find some software to apply to this problem. I found nothing. So I quit that job. I started Ruffian Software and we wrote a product called Tech ID Manager to specifically address the MSP privileged account management problem. And we started, so February 2019, we started, and we are here now. We have clients on four continents and are making privilege account access much safer for MSP technicians all over the world. And we love it. That is awesome. Um, I guess the thing that most people ask is going from corporate to now your own entity, what are some of the challenges from that transition one? And then being your own entity, what are some challenges have, that you've been facing within the industry itself and software? The biggest challenge in going from a corporate or a company that somebody else owned, because I worked with large companies, but never in a large corporate organization. I was calling, always a contractor or on the fringe or worked for a smaller company that worked for a bigger company. I saw that corporate stuff, the waste, the lag, the red tape to get stuff done. I liked working at smaller companies. And then when I started working for myself and my own micro-sized company, the difference in what is required to happen, HR stuff, payroll stuff, all that minutia that is a business is separate from the product and solving the problem and solving customer needs. That overhead piece was something that I was completely not expecting. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I've never had to deal with it before. I'm a technical person. I'll just solve this technical problem and the business stuff, and eh, that'll take care of itself. So that was a, a learning curve that I had to go through and figure out all that. And like, it's still a learning curve because though this is the third startup I've been involved in, the first one 
well, existed six months and exited. I was only a worker bee there. I didn't actually run it. I wasn't really involved in any of those business negotiation stuff. The second startup I was involved in was me and two other engineers. And the two other engineers, all three of us very smart. We wrote a product, but none of us were business savvy enough to actually take that product to market. So we left. I left that. And then this is the third startup. I've taken all the experience that I had from the technical side and the things I thought I saw I was missing from the business side, but actually doing it yourself and starting a company, there are so many roadblocks, things you'll trip over, roots on the trail, like whatever you want to call it that just jumps up and grabs you and you're like, oh, today I can't improve the product. I have to figure out how to get health insurance. <laughs> so those were the biggest challenges so going back to the beginning you know you you identified an issue that you thought might have potential you probably spent a little time investigating it but at what point did you what was the process and what point did you realize oh i've got something here that might turn into a startup it's commercially large enough that i can i can take advantage of the situation to actually build a company to solve that problem so I saw this poster, oh, I don't know, six months ago for the first time. And it said on the corner of another founder's office on the wall, big giant poster said, we did this because we thought it would be easy. And that thought part was bolded. And that I just thought it would be easy. Oh, I can write the software. People will just come by it. The On the day that I quit my job to start this company, you should have seen the financial projection that I had. It was, you know, in a year, I'll have a thousand clients. People will just beat their way to my door for the better mousetrap. That's not the reality of how marketing sales goes in a startup company. You know, one of those roadblocks and the things on the trail using your words that you, uh, you discovered and had to overcome. Yes. Yeah. Because just because you have a better product, people have to know, worst they have to know about it. And then there's the whole marketing journey of earning their trust and all that kind of stuff that uh, is repeatable between startups and is something that um, SCRA particularly has been really helpful with and introduced me to the right people to learn that piece of a business, the technical piece I got, but that business piece is where SCRA and next and all those other people are being very, have been very helpful over the course of the last year. Yeah. Do you want to talk more about that experience that you had with SCRA? Um, the one support getting the business support, but like what other ways do you think that we've been able to kind of marry this partnership to be able to help you excel and grow and be the business that you are today? Yeah, sure. The um, So it all starts uh, February 2019. Like I said, I started the company. Mm-hmm. I bootstrapped it. I got my first client in August, started growing. I've grown since then. And reached profitability at a point a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago. And I was having dinner with a good friend and we we're just chit-chatting about life and business and AI and all the things in the world. And he said to me, just kind of out of the blue, the biggest advantage that a company has starting in the U S is the access to easy capital to grow faster. I remember that sentence very specifically because it was up to that point. I had never considered taking money, investment money and that kind of stuff. I was just spending my own money getting to making money. And then like, I was going to, as I grew slowly, I was going to invest that money back in the company and grow. But this 
uh, David was his name, his statement really made me think the there that is true. If I could go ahead and hire another salesperson, another developer, that, that would really accelerate the growth of the company. So I did, I started looking casually for funding money and I came across SCRA, came across a couple others and SCRA uh, connected me with Next and VMS and a whole, over the course of the next six months, I discovered this is a whole ecosystem of founders and investors that are there in Greenville to help support other founders in Greenville and in South Carolina. And this resource became so valuable. I, all the things that I talked about at the beginning, the things that I was missing, those roots in the trail, the roadblocks, those all got pointed out that I had hit and not even know I hit and the ones that I was going to run into. So it was a, it's been a phenomenal learning experience being as part of that ecosystem, learning from those people meeting them, meeting other founders. Um, I'm now part of the VMS mentors group because of the, because of meeting SCRA. Uh, and that is phenomenal. I meet with a regular group of mentors and they say, Hey, they are older guys that have all done this before and women. And they're like, Hey, this is something you might run into. This is something you want to consider like just very high level and even detail things on the business front that it help is the best way to put it. It's, it helps. The, and the ecosystem is phenomenal. I love being involved in it. So for the next stage of your journey, um, what are some of the roadblocks that you're starting to identify um, that you're starting to say, this is something I got to focus on. Here's some expertise I need. Kind of what do you see going forward as, 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 as the evolution of your growth, not only for the company, but for you as the manager of the company? The... When I started this company, there was nobody else in the marketplace doing this. I was the like tech ID manager was the only company that privilege account management specifically for MSPs. There were a couple other privilege account management and privilege access management products, big ones, enterprise level stuff, but they didn't scale out. Um, so I started advertising, started educating the marketplace. And because of that, some competitors have come up and these competitors are way more funded than we are. So this, that, how do you compete with people with more money? How do you compete with people who have already done this before? They've already run on all these roadblocks. Those details about go-to-market strategy, those details about salesman compensation, those details about how you find and hire people to actually scale out a team. Because it's easy to say, we're, you know, we're X number of people now. We'd like to be X plus Y number of people in six months. But how do you find those people? How do you make sure that those hires are good hires? And the that gambit of, well, you hire by gut feel all the way to, well, you do 15 interviews and a personality test and you make them work for a month for free. There's a wide range of suggestions on the internet and from people on how you hire somebody. So like having some advice on how to hire for my company is one of those roadblocks. How to go to market, how to find clients, how to do compensation. All those business things are are those things that people help with that yeah. I that I love. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I know founders who have struggled with that hiring curve too. Um, one of the things you see is as you start your company, the hiring needs pivot essentially as you scale your company. So it's finding one individuals that can grow with your company, but then two knowing when to release the ones that no longer align with the vision 
And how do you bring on the new ones that can align with that vision? And I've heard that from other um, founders. So I'm curious, within your journey since 2019, um, have you figured out maybe like a secret formula or have you like discovered my hiring red flags versus my hiring green flags? Um, what would you have done differently? When do you decide, all right, this person doesn't work anymore. It doesn't align. How do I let them go in a manner that's effective? Um, and then how do you bring on new people? Cause I think that's going to be a challenge too. on like, how do you identify good candidates that align with your vision? Yeah. The, uh, the biggest piece there, there are two things. One, company culture. Like, as long as somebody has some, there are all kinds of people with skill. Yeah. But to find somebody that matches your company culture, especially for a startup, a small, where everybody wears multiple hats, where you're doing multiple things, company culture fit is so much more important than anybody ever says. Yeah. At a corporate environment, culture doesn't really matter because they're all big, they're all slow, there's red tape. But in a startup, a small company, culture matters so much more. As long as you have the skills, culture is what's important. And even uh, I talked to some founders who were successful and they said, culture is more important than skill set. Find somebody that matches your culture, your work mentality, your attitude, your drive, whatever it is, find that person, hire them, and then figure out where they fit in the organization. And as long as you don't overload one particular skill set, hire the people that fit your culture is more important than people that fit the skill set you need. Because one person who doesn't fit your culture can sink the whole thing they can make it a very toxic environment and the other thing the other statement that comes that i've heard is the person that got you here might not be the person needed to get you there mm. as in those people that thrive in the high chaos permanent market and terminate workplace that is a two-person startup trying to go from no sales to 100 sales could be a very different person than that person who can write process put organization in process have repeatable repeatable outcomes to the things they do to go from a hundred clients to a thousand clients or from a thousand to a million. The, and you need to make sure that the, not that you can hire somebody that goes all the way, but that you can make sure that everybody's happy all along the way and they fit the culture. And that when you do get to that point, you either find a different role for the person who no longer fits or you part ways happily and say, Hey, this has been great, but this is not, not going to work out for a variety of reasons. You know, for your company, you know, you're a tech company. So uh, we often hear with tech companies that, you know, a number of the employees or the part-time employees are located at a different location and you're doing, you know, things virtually, um, usually programmers or something of that sort. Um, is that, is that something that's part of your, your, your company as well? And is that, you know, in terms of the culture and the structure of the company, is that something that you really pay attention to is if I've got somebody who's virtual, I manage them a little differently or I do something a little differently. Everybody in our company is virtual. We don't have an office. We all have offices at home. And yep. that that is less uncommon nowadays. It's more common nowadays. But like Elon Musk said, Elon Musk is forcing everybody back in the office. I think there is a shift. IBM is an excellent case study on remote work versus in-person work. IBM 20 years ago shifted all remote for a while and they shifted back to all in-person and they shifted back to all remote. And their, their reasons for going back and forth are paramount to look at when you are considering all remote versus in-person versus some hybrid setup. The And it also goes back to that culture piece. Our culture is a remote culture. That means that we hop on Zoom, we hop on Google Meets, we hop on Slack chats. We have pretty consistent conversation. 
We don't get that water cooler chat, which I personally very much miss. You know, walk into the office, you go get a drink out of the fridge, and you're like, hey, how was your weekend? Mm -hmm. So because we don't have that in the break room or on the way in and out of the office of the cars and everybody arrives at 8 o'clock, I, I make a specific effort to try and have one-on-one -on -one conversation time with each employee virtually at some point during the week. And we make sure, I try very hard to get together physically once a month, once every month and a half as a group to do something. Like last weekend, we all met up at Hampton Station, had lunch, had some drinks, threw some axes as a, a corporate event, corporate event for our small company. And that, you know, builds everybody, everybody who had a spouse, brought their spouses. It was a fun time. And that's how you can get some of that in there. But that, that culture piece is very yeah. important. And you also have to trust that they're doing the work. Yeah. You're not going to get eight hours of screen time out of somebody on a remote job. Yeah. You can try it. I've seen tools. I've even tried, I've even had people approach me like, Hey, you need to install this tool to watch, make sure they're clicking a button every now and then. But conversely, I have intelligent programmer friends who have remote jobs in Germany. This guy works in the U S has a job in Germany. The German company requires he works eight hours in German time. So he doesn't want to work second shift or like third shift essentially in the U S to meet their timeframes. So he works when he wants his eight hours and he wrote a program that clicks his mouse and moves his keyboard the eight hours that the German company is, has office hours. So he has one computer that's their computer that does pretends to be working for eight hours. And he answers his phone if they call, but he works to get all his work done, but it's unshifted hours. Yeah. So those tools, especially in a tech company where the people are tech savvy, it's not something you can do. You have to trust the people going back to, again, how important company culture is. That, that sounds like another business opportunity. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there, like, so my daughter, uh, during COVID, was finishing out college. Yeah. And that college test, when, like, going to college remotely, they became, all colleges became very paranoid about it. Tons of software came out insofar as her laptop had to have the camera running during some of the tests, looking at her, and they used facial recognition the entire time she was taking that test to make sure she was looking at the screen and not looking off to the side. Oh, wow. And unbeknownst to me, she was sitting in a room doing whatever. And I walked in, I was like, hey, I'm going to make some tea. Do you want some tea? Because my daughter and I share tea all the time. We love it. And she's like, go away, dad. I'm taking a test. I can't look away from the camera. <laughs> Wow. You know? That is traumatizing. I feel yeah. for the kiddos that had to go through their collegiate experience virtually. Um, I, I got the later end of it. So like I finished my last two years during the pandemic and it is, a, it's a different world. Yeah. Um, the experience is so different. You come out kind of feeling like you were cheated a little bit from that college experience that was promised to you. Um, so props to her, kudos to her. I'm sure she's doing great um, following all of that, but that is super traumatic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that business opportunity for making sure somebody's sitting at their computer and working, there's there's a ton of people out there trying it, but all of them are, it actually relates back to the problem that Tech ID Manager solves in such a unique way. Tech ID Manager solves a privileged account management problem or an identity management problem. Yeah. How do you prove that somebody on the other side of the keyboard is who they say they are? 
You have a username and a password to get an account. You have MFA, multi-factor authentication. So something there memorized, there's something you are, something you know, and something you have. Yeah. Password is something you know, something you are is like biometrics, something you have is like uh, a key or something like that. So the MFA is a second token. How do you prove that that person is that person becomes paramount to cybersecurity around the world, especially now that we're like all working remote yeah. and outside IT resources remote into your computer and fix something? How do you prove like the MGM hack that happened recently where MGM had paid the $10 million ransomware fine? The root of that was AI voice generation mm. that tricked an a help desk technician into resetting a, somebody's password when it was really wasn't that person talking. It was AI voice generation. So something that they are, their voice is no longer truly mm. valid for that second factor of authentication. That was like, the next question. Um, with everything, with like deep fake and all of these different new ways to fish, like, do you have advice, one, for the novelists who are like, I've never dealt with this. I don't know what to do on this. How do I protect myself, my loved ones, as well as like my corporate entities from having an experience exactly like that? Like, what do you do? There are a myriad of cybersecurity frameworks, SOC 2, PCI, HIPAA, NIST, CMMC, ISO, Essential 8 in Australia, Cyber Essentials in UK and Europe. The best thing that you can do is pick some cybersecurity framework. CIS is a good one to start with because it's prescriptive and what it says to do. Pick some cybersecurity framework and don't look at it as the set of checkboxes to complete in order to be safe. Right. That's the wrong way to look at it. Look at it as here are a bunch of things that people who have been breached said, oh, it would have been better or it wouldn't have happened had I done these things. Mm -hmm. So don't look at them like, when it says um, MFA on all admin accounts, don't look at it like, oh, we need to check that box that says MFA. We can just put this shared cell phone over here and all these people can look at this cell phone when they need be. No, think of it as in, how do I actually protect each account? When it says, well, you gotta have backups. Well, don't just install some backup software, let it run its backup and forget about it. Make sure that when it says a line like you need backups, make sure that the backup is made on a regular basis and restore it to make sure it actually works. Look at these cybersecurity frameworks, not as checkboxes that you have to do to be secure because they're not, they're not checkboxes. They are mm -hmm. guidelines from people who've been there and been damaged by it. Mm -hmm. And it is such a difference in the way you think about something when you're, it's not just a checkbox. It's a guideline. See how this guideline applies. And think about this guideline from the point of view that somebody really suffered financially, physically, emotionally, even life-threateningly because they didn't do these things. Like um, there were some hospital hacks last year. There was one where a vendor, a vendor for, I believe, the x-ray machine used the same password on every x-ray machine they installed all around. Then... Somebody cracked one x-ray machine, were able to get into the hospital of a, where they had a different x-ray machine. And from there, they worked their privilege and they worked their hack through the rest of the hospital. They shut down the hospital, which meant that patients in rooms, doctors couldn't see the records because they're all electronic for people in rooms. And you had to depend on somebody who was in a room to know what their medical condition was and what they needed. And that just is wrong. People died from it. Um, 
that's why hospitals are so willing to pay those fines. And it's also with that retitle spec together, the MGM hack that happened recently. I had some friends that were out in Vegas at the MGM hotel when this happened. And there were two very interesting things that they said about the MGM hotel when they got ransomware. One, they couldn't pay for their room. They couldn't get into the room. The keys didn't work to the room. Two, nothing in the casino was down or slowed down or broken at all. Paying money to the casino, getting chips in and out, all the vending, mm -hmm. all the game machines, that entire piece of the business was completely unaffected because that's where the casino actually put their cybersecurity resources was where the money is. Mm -hmm. Room access was an air gaps, different system, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. They didn't care about that piece, so it got breached. The piece they cared about, they protected. So yeah. it's really about there, you can stop hacks. Like this hacker had full access to all of these systems, but because they were really secure about their secure, really secure about their security, that's a terrible thing to say, really diligent about their cybersecurity with the money aspect, that hack couldn't move horizontally through their ecosystem. It's a, it, all these hacks are stoppable if you have one, the money, and two, the manpower and time to put into it and do it, and three, the diligence to continue to do it. Like, um, I saw this interview many, many moons ago of a terrorist who got caught trying to take down a plane with a bomb. And he said, the US, he, he said about a bunch of bad things about the US, but then he said, you have to get lucky every single day, every single time you're trying to stop people. The bad guy, he only has to get lucky once. Yeah. So the hackers are the same way. They only have to get lucky once. But on the red team side, on the blue team side, you have to be persistent and diligent all the time. And it's and there's tons of software out there to help you. There's virus software, there's malware software, there's backup software, there's privilege account management software. There's all kinds of software to help you, but you have to actually use the software. Yeah, you've got to be intentional. Yeah. 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 So and you have to be dedicated. You 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 mentioned go to market strategy. You know, one of the one of the challenges of the cyber sector is is there's great there's a there's a lot of great metaphors or real life situations actually, not even metaphors, but uh, examples is a better word um, for events. Um, you know, significant events. Uh, you know, the, the the oil pipeline shutdown for here in, in in South Carolina would be probably one of the bigger ones. Um, but how do you how do you go to market and convince corporations to buy services to prevent things like that? that? That's always a challenge. And it's it's almost like buying an insurance package. You know, it could happen or could not, but I need you to spend some money on it. Um, how did you, you know, how did you grapple with a big issue like that as a startup? Because, you know, you've, you've got a limited budget, little limited uh, capability to get your voice out there, but this is a big problem. This is the problem you're trying to address. How'd you do the go-to-market strategy around it? There were really, the biggest thing we've done is try to educate people. The MSP, the IT companies, are very open to listening in two situations. One, they have a breach. The moment you have, they have a breach, or they know somebody that has a breach who's close to them in the same peer group, something like that. At that moment, they are very open to listening, and they're doing internet research to find out how to fix this so it doesn't happen again or doesn't happen to them. And the second time that they're very open to listening to something about specifically tech ID manager and privilege account management software is the first time that they hire or fire somebody that they don't know. If they, the first time a company hires somebody, a technician 
and is going to grant them access to all of their client networks. And the access that they're granting is sufficient to destroy every one of those companies. That is the point that they're like, oh, I need to think about this. I can't just willy-nilly give this away. And then this, when they take that, when that same person who they don't know, when they fire that person and they walk out the door, they think, how much access is that person walking out the door with? Does that person remember a password that can get them access into one of my clients and wreck that client because they're, they're vengeful? They're a bad actor. They think they were cheated out of this job. They don't like me anymore. The, that bad actor or disgruntled employee situation is something that a lot of companies don't think about, especially MSPs when they're small and they're growing and like they're just adding people, adding resources. But the first time they fire somebody, they're like, what access did they take out the door? So do you, do you and your go-to-market strategy, do you highlight those issues and, and use them in your, in your uh, marketing material? Or how do, you, how do you bring those to the forefront so a, a company can either identify with one of those situations or the company looks at the list of situations and said, okay, this is, this is relevant to me and I'm willing to uh, uh, address it. What's your go-to-market around that? So the, that particular thing is FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We try not to do much around FUD. Mm -hmm. But when on the internet in a Reddit forum about uh, MSPs or Tech Tribe or a Facebook group that's specifically about IT companies, when something like that comes up, and they're like, hey, we just fired this person. What do we do about this? We definitely inject ourselves and say, hey, hi there. We are Tech ID Manager. We solved this problem and a bunch of others that you're having around privileged account management. So our go-to-market strategies, one of them is specifically to use that educational moment and go into the places where MSPs are talking, internet forums, specifically, Reddit, Tech Tribe, Facebook. Uh, there's a bunch of other internet forums we talk in and say, when they're talking about those things, be like, hey, we're here, just real quietly, poke ourselves in, we're not salesy about it, we're not like, hey, we have the best product ever, come look at us, we're like, hey, we can help you address this next time it happens, we'd love to talk to you more. Yeah. Yeah. So it's real subtle, real gentle education and announcement that we're here. Yeah. Coming from like the MSPs, how did you create a persona of the ideal target person that you would want to sell to? Or do you think would be a really good client for you? Because as an individual, you've got to be intentional about the different people that you engage with. Um, but also to giving yourself that value proposition to stand away from everybody else in the same space, you know? Yeah. So I worked at an MSP for 12 years and that MSP went from six people when I started to 30 something people when I left. So I was, I personally am very intimately familiar with the whole, the size range of all that medium, to, the small to medium size MSP. Mm -hmm. And I have worked in with corporate IT organizations that are, you know, 50 to hundred people. So like I'm intimately familiar with the size of organization that needs what they need. And since I was there for 12 years, I saw this problem. I was like, this, I can solve this situation. It also needs this, solve this. It also needs to solve that. So I took all of those, what I knew and I packaged together with a specific target of a company size and a specific feature set that really said, Hey, you're my client. I want you to work. We do work in sizes outside of our ideal customer profile, but we know what it is and we target them. And it's harder to target them on the internet because a lot of the anonymity 
that people have like Reddit, you know, just because somebody's name is uh, Evil Mouse 3, it's really <laughs> hard to tie Evil Mouse 3 back to an IT company in Florida that failed to get a Disney contract and they're now mad about it. But <laughs> it's hard. So you can you can get from, if you look at Evil Mouse's 3's posts over time and say, oh, I think this is the size company he is. I think he's this person, but we'll wait and see. So we have like, we build over time a map and try to figure out who's who and talk to them. And then some people just say who they are. Like my Reddit username is Martin. It's real straightforward. Yeah. Everybody knows who I'm trying, not trying to hide behind anonymity, you know? So the, the ideal customer profile, because I was in that industry for so long yeah. and I grew through a company, I, I can pretty well identify it. And the feature set, even, um, and like one of my favorite features of the whole product is we rotate everyone's password every 24 hours. And then we show that to them either on a, like on their computer, they have some tools to help use it or on their mobile phone, because technicians often need to go sit in front of a computer and they need to type in their pass, type in an administrative password to get logged in to fix the computer. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have a 30 character, fully random password, you don't want to type that in. Or you're going to get lost if you see it on like on a phone screen. It's a little tiny font all the way across. You get lost. So one of the features that we have that technicians absolutely love is that in the mobile client, you can click on that password mm -hmm. and it changes it to five character chunks that are 60 point font that you highlight your way through as you type them in. So you're not getting lost in the middle of the password because, and that comes from my experience as a technician. I was one point handed a sticky note that had a 32 character password on it. And told to go fix this machine at this other company I had to drive to us. I drove there with my sticky note. I stand in front of this machine and I type in this password. Character, 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 character. Type it in. And I get done. I'm at the I'm on the very last character. And there are only 31 characters in the password I've typed in. And I know there are 32 characters on this sticky note. And I'm like, oh, I gotta do this again. I don't know which word, which letter I missed. I hit enter, it doesn't work. I have to try again. And I only get three tries before the machine locks that account out. And then it's a real problem. So yeah. in addition to identifying the ideal customer, I have some very specific experience as being that ideal customer that helps make their job easier. And they love that. One of my pet peeves is Zoom on my mobile phone when it doesn't carry the password through when you dial the number. And then you got to go back and look at that. It's like, why can't it be four digits? But it's always nine. <laughs> And you got to sit there on your phone going, okay, what? <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. What letter, what number was I on? <laughs> so, um, you know, going back and looking at, you know, the where you're at now versus where you were, um, I'll give you the choice. You know, what's what's the one or two things that you feel like you really did right in terms of putting this together and working your way to, you know, the the market and the, uh, the execution within the market or... Um, what are the one or two things that you wish you had done right? <laughs> Maybe you, you, you know now that you, this is the way you should have executed, but, um, you know, you didn't do it. So I'm just kind of curious as to, you know, if you have a young entrepreneur sitting there talking to you, what's one or two pieces of advice you could give them in terms of, oh, boy, I wish I'd have done this differently or, boy, I'm glad I did this differently. I did the way I did it. Uh, I'll actually answer both those because they're real fast. Sure. One, the, the piece of thing that I did right that I tell like I would tell everybody else to do is we hired a social media person who her entire job is to hmm. look at internet forums where IT technicians are and inject our name when they're talking about something that's specific to us. 
-hmm. And that is reminiscent of knowing your customer, yeah. knowing where your customer is and organically getting in front of them okay. and having them know your name. So you have that mental real estate, even if they are. So person A posts on internet forum says, Hey, I have this problem. And we say, Hey, we think we can solve this for you. you want to talk to us. It's not that person that we're talking to at that point. It is person B, person C, person D, person E, person Z that reads that post in the future yeah. that we are truly talking about. Yeah. Like a one-on-one -on -one conversation that has no persistence, but an internet forum conversation has persistence. So use the internet, know your customers, know where they are, and know the attitude they have about being sold to them and get in front of them with the attitude that they accept in the places they accept it. Mm -hmm. Like if I want to sell to an MSP, I'm not going to go talk to a car salesman. I, I think in the, back in the day, we would have called that guerrilla marketing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It is very much guerrilla marketing. And it, yep. for the target audience that we have, it works very well. Yep. And the, uh, the thing that I would tell somebody else, I would have told myself to do sooner was go get involved in the ecosystem of other founders much sooner. Mm -hmm. Like that piece is uh, the people that have been there and done it have the t shirt talk to those people. I spent the first three and a half years of this company by myself in my office, drilling it out, grinding it out, making the software, making it work without any focus on the business because I didn't know it. I ignored it, you know? Yeah. So, but getting out of that ecosystem and meeting other founders, hearing their voice, hearing them say, Oh yes, you don't know what it is yet, but here's what it is. Here's how easy it is to solve. Do it yeah. is the biggest piece of advice I would give to anybody trying to start a company, yeah. find somebody to do it with. And the two of you co-found and go out and get in that ecosystem. And I, I would, I would, tell you that you know in the last since 2020 when when kind of the ecosystems collapsed a little bit across the state with the uh, uh COVID outbreak um those ecosystems have lit up i mean we are we are we are seeing tremendous amount of energy and and just such a plethora of locations across the state from uh you know myrtle beach to buford to uh columbia to you know the uh charleston greenville there's a new accelerator in Greer that I just was uh, doing some judging at um, Rock Hill. Um, there are a lot of ecosystems out there. And uh, for those listening to this podcast, uh, find one because there's probably one in a very short distance from you. Yeah. Even if it's not drive to it, yeah. go to it, yeah. get involved. The, there is the straight obvious benefit if you were there and if you're talking to people, you learn information, there are the unobvious benefits of, when one of those people you talk to, here's a problem that you have, they know somebody else who they're going to connect you with. Yeah. And that connection to you from them, from another person can make a web of connections that can greatly enhance you, your company, your experience, save you so much time and money and just, it's well worth it. Get involved in the ecosystem. That's the biggest yeah. advice. Like, Get involved, get involved, get involved. Have an idea. Have the ability to execute and get involved in the ecosystem. So my, my last question, you said axe throwing is one of your activities. I just want to make sure you got all 10 fingers. Yeah, I got all 10 fingers. <laughs> I love axes, knives, saws. I am, I am a antique tool enthusiast. <laughs> Good time. Um, I went to a place in Colombia and they had a spear. Mm, I wasn't going to spear, but I can throw an axe a little. It's not probably as well as you, but, it, you know, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get the bullseye every now and then. Yeah. Um, 
I think the last thing, how do people find you? Where do they yep. find you? LinkedIn, Instagram, Snapchat, X, because I don't think it's Twitter anymore. No, it's called X. Uh, techanymanager.com is the most obvious way to find us. Techanymanager.com, we're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn. Um, if you search for Tech ID Manager or Ruffian Software, which is the name of the company, Ruffian Software, that's the name of the company. <laughs> Tech ID Manager is the company, or is the product. Um, either of those, you search for us, you'll find us. We we love being out there. All right. Like, check us out. Request a demo if you're a tech, if you're an MSP or a technician or IT. We'd love to show it to you in more detail. Martin, we really appreciate you taking the time today, and we've enjoyed talking to you, and uh, uh, we've enjoyed working with you. So uh, I, I look forward to seeing you in events here in Greenville over the next couple of weeks. Yep. If there's one on my calendar for next week to drive down there, I'm super excited about it, Matt. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect.